That's why I'm departing from the book of Mark today to talk about baptism. Baptism. The meaning of baptism. Um, so I want to show you a picture of a lady here. This is Helen. Helen is a famous, was a famous author and a famous advocate for disability rights. As a toddler, Helen became incredibly sick with an illness that wasn't understood at the time, probably meningitis. She survived against all odds, but she was left deaf and blind. So her world became a dark, silent, lonely place. She would describe it later on as the feeling of being lost in a fog for years and years. Uh, we might think of it as a, a prison shut off from the world, impossible to break from. But then the Lord sent someone to Helen. Her name was Anne. Anne was herself partially blind, and she had went to a school for the blind, and she was called upon to help Helen to try to cope. Anne had a friend 20 years before named Laura who had learned to communicate through sign language. This, this friend, Laura, was also deaf and blind, and she had learned to communicate through sign language pressed into the palm of her hand. And she interpreted those signs touched into the palm of her hand, and she could communicate that way. Of course, there's a problem here with Anne learning this. Anne was stricken with deafness and blindness so young that she really didn't have an understanding of what words were. She really didn't have an understanding that a word meant a particular kind of thing. Like, you know, I would say this is a bottle. She would not understand that there's a word for this. She would feel it. She could touch it. She could maybe smell what's in it, but she would not have understood that there's, there's a meaning, there's a word to refer to this. So Anne worked with Helen for a long time to try to get her to understand. She would make these signs into the palm of her hand, but Helen did not understand that this had meaning. And months went by and there was no progress. And so Anne had an idea. She took Helen down to this old well pump that was on the family's property. One of those kinds that you pump the handle and it shoots out water. And she made the sign into Helen's hand. She spelled out a word. And Tara's going to help me with that here. Tara's such a blessing. So she spelled out this, this sign, W-A-T-E-R. W-A-T-E-R. And that spells water. And then she worked the handle of the pump and poured water over the hand of, of Helen. And she did it again. She spelled out W-A-T-E-R and poured water over her hand. Again and again and again until Helen understood that these signs pressed into the palm of her hand were not just play. They were not just independent letters. They, they meant something. They meant water. That was the breakthrough. That was the key that turned the lock, that opened the door into this new life. And, and this, was, this word spelled into her palm was this step in of a new beginning, a new and different life. W-A-T-E-R. That was her momentum shift. We like to talk about a momentum shift around here, and that's my prayer always, that there'll be a momentum shift in the direction of Jesus. No matter where you're at, we want to see people move 
or a momentum shift in his direction, even if it is a slowing down if they're walking away. It's a momentum shift. This was her momentum shift towards a different life, her turning point. It was the moment when she took her first steps towards a new life with purpose and learning and advocacy. And, of course, this is Helen Keller, who maybe you've heard about. I don't know if they still teach about Helen Keller in schools these days, but I remember hearing about Helen Keller, who became this disability advocate, and she became this powerful voice for the marginalized and a symbol of unwavering determination. She overcame her limitations and made such a difference in the world. And it started with that first step, W-A-T-E-R. As followers of Jesus, we have a first step too. And it has something to do with W-A-T-E-R. It's the first step after we become a believer. Jesus gave us this command that has to do with water, this act of obedience that we're going to be going through with next week. And it's baptism. It's water baptism. Lord willing, next Sunday afternoon, we're going to baptize at least one, maybe more. Maybe there's someone in this room who needs to be baptized. So I want to talk about what it means a week ahead of time. So we're not in the book of Mark today. We're over in the book of Acts. Because as much as it would be fun for us to have like a deep theological conversation about all of the the many different traditions when it comes to baptism. I think I'm just going to tell you a story from the Bible and it will tell us everything we need to know. Does that sound good? Deep theological discussion. Yeah, we can have that. But I think right now we're going to start with the story. I like, a story is a good place to start those conversations. This is in Acts chapter 8. It happens in the early days of the Jesus movement. This is within a few years after the resurrection. We don't know exactly, but this... um, it was a, a time, you can just put it on the title of the, the message if you'd like, Janiah, for now. It was a time when, um, when most of the believers were centered in Jerusalem. And I love this story. It's one of my favorite stories in the whole New Testament. It's definitely my favorite story about baptism here. It's in Acts chapter 8. And before we really get into it, let's pray. Okay. Heavenly Father, will you please bless us in this moment? Will you help us to understand what baptism means? And Lord... I pray that if folks have not obeyed you in baptism, they'll begin to see that it's the right thing to do. And those of us who have, if we don't understand it as well as we should, I pray you'll give us understanding now in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll be honest with you. I was saved when I was nine, almost ten, and then baptized a little, a few months later. And Maybe somebody explained it to me. Probably somebody did, but I did not have nearly the understanding I would have liked to have had about what baptism meant. I understood baptism when I realized that I was about to baptize somebody and I didn't understand baptism well enough. First person I ever baptized was was Billy Johnson, who's a pastor now. Some of you, a few of you will know Billy. Debbie will remember Billy. Billy Johnson, who is a pastor now, just a really cool guy. He was the first guy I ever baptized, and I was like ready to baptize him, and I'm thinking, hold up. I'm the pastor, and I don't know about baptism. Not well enough. So I, I had to study it, and we're going to see it in this story. The first man we meet in this story, his name is Philip. It's a great, it's a great, strong Christian name, right? Philip. Great name. Philip is a servant leader 
in the church at Jerusalem in the early days. He's one of the first deacons. This guy was well known as a servant, as a leader. He also did some preaching and sharing of the gospel, some evangelism. He was there in that first community of believers in Jerusalem. So as Philip is about to, he's going about his daily tasks, which included taking food to some widows in the church. He feels a tap on his shoulder. Who is it? Who's tapping on his shoulder? Is it the apostles who have some special duty for him to do? Is it one of the Pharisees in Jerusalem who are trying to stop him? Is it somebody reaching out to him about his extended warranty on his car? It is not. It's an angel. Now, what would you think if you someone tapped on your shoulder and you turned around and it was an angel? I think... I think I would be looking for some clean clothes. I think I'd be looking for for a clean pair of shorts. Um, But it didn't happen that often. Understand, we look in the Bible and we see a lot of people meeting angels, but the Bible covers a period of history of 1,500 to 2,000 years of the kind of the primary narrative from Moses forward. And how many times do you see people meeting angels? I mean, it's... Not that often. It's not a whole lot when you think about it being sprinkled out over a minimum of 1,500, 2,000 years. And if we go back to Eden, way more than that. So probably you're not going to turn around and see an angel. Can God still send angels? I believe he can. There's nothing stopping him from that. But more likely, he's going to send you a message through another form. And the number one way that God is going to send you a message, Mr. Honeycutt, may I borrow that, sir? Right here is the number one way God is likely to send you a message. That is through his word, the Bible. Thank you, sir. We would like God to speak to us, but we can forget that he has spoken to us. 66 books worth of information. And most of what God wants for your life is there. Now, there's some details that that won't be there necessarily. You know, when you're trying to choose between two good alternatives, that won't necessarily be found there but the lord will give you some insight on some scripture to help you find that there god will speak to you through his word he will speak to you through his holy spirit and his holy spirit will most likely speak to you through illuminating his word that'll be the number one place the holy spirit will help you understand his word and how it applies to your situation the holy spirit also will nudge our hearts could he do some audible words maybe but probably he won't he doesn't typically the holy spirit will speak through circumstances through subtle movements in our heart through prompting us and we're going to see that later in the the story with philip but for now an angel has told philip that he needs to go down on the road towards gaza that is south of jerusalem kind of southwest of jerusalem like on the way to egypt and it is a deserted area it's not much going on there even to this day it's, uh, it's kind of a desert area where this took place. So Philip picks his way out of the densely packed streets of Jerusalem, out onto the open road, and he walks for hours. It would have taken probably most of the day to get where the angel sent him. And he doesn't know why he's being sent. He just knows he's supposed to go. And he meets people on the road. And how would you feel if you were Philip and you're walking down the road and you're like, man, I keep, I'm walking a long ways here. My feet's starting to get tired. Is, is this, am I supposed to meet this person or this person or this person? And 
We don't know how many people he met, but none of them were the right person. So he's walking and going. Let me, under, let me tell you this. What I have seen in the Word of God and in my own life is sometimes God will send you in a direction and you don't know why. And you won't get to know why until you're there. God has plans and His will and He's under no obligation to explain them to us. We just obey when He says go in this direction. We've got to trust Him and obey that His direction is a good direction. So I, I don't know how that applies to your life, but I bet it does. I bet it does somewhere in your life applies that God's got you going in a direction and you need to trust Him. And the rest of it will be revealed in time. So he's going in a direction and he doesn't know why. About halfway to Gaza, out in the middle of nowhere, he hears a noise, a rumbling, a jangling coming up from behind him. He knows the sound, but he's surprised to hear it out here. And he sees this cloud of dust approaching, and that confirms it. Someone is in a chariot coming from behind him, coming from the direction of Jerusalem. Someone's in a chariot. And that's where we meet the other guy in our story. We don't know this man's name, but it's hard to talk about somebody, refer to him if we don't have a name for him. So I'm going to give him a name temporarily. This wasn't his name, but I, given one of the few things we know about him, this might help us to remember. We're going to call him Eugene. Eugene, and there's a reason for that, and you'll see in a moment. Eugene is riding in a chariot. Now, we don't know much about his history, but we're told that Eugene is a high official under the Queen of Ethiopia. And when you hear the word Ethiopia, you probably have a picture in mind of a very impoverished African nation. And that is the case now. Tough, tough place to be. But understand when this was written, this Ethiopia was much more prosperous empire and uh, the geographic borders were a little different. So this was a guy who worked for a very powerful empire. And he held a very prominent position. He was the treasurer of the whole kingdom, of the whole empire of, of Ethiopia. Something else we know about this guy we're calling Eugene. Somewhere over the course of his life, he learned about the true God. He had learned that the Jehovah God was a true God and he had at least believed as much as he understood. How do we know this? It's because we're told he was coming back from Jerusalem where he had been worshiping God at the temple. As a Gentile, he would not have been able to go into the inner parts of the temple, but he could have went to the what they called the court of the Gentiles, which is kind of the outside area of the temple, and he had worshipped God there. And now he's returning back to his home in Ethiopia, and he's riding this chariot. He's a very finely dressed, tall man. And he is at that moment reading the scroll of Isaiah as he is driving his chariot. You may have spotted a problem with this, because... As much as I want to encourage you to read your Bible every day, you probably should not be reading a physical copy of the Bible while you're driving. Probably not. Good news is, you can go on, if you've got a smartphone, you can download the Version Bible app, which is not a sponsor of this program, and uh, you can just listen to the Bible. It'll play the audio Bible for you. I do that every day, like when I'm brushing my teeth, getting ready, got the audio Bible in my little earbuds, not disturbing anybody in the house, and I'm starting my day with some scripture, and you can too. It's very, very easy. But 
They didn't have the U-Version Bible app back then. They didn't have any recorded form. They just had scrolls. But they did have self-driving vehicles. Kind of. What is pulling this chariot? A horse. Horses have some sense. A horse can follow the road without a whole lot of direction of the, from the driver, leaving the driver to hold a scroll. So understand, yes, he's kind of texting while driving, but it was a self-driving car thing. Self-driving vehicle, okay? So it's all right, it's safe. And he's reading in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And he's puzzled by it. He's stuck on a passage. If you read the Word of God, there'll be times where you get kind of stuck on a passage like, oh man, what does this mean? You read it over and over again. And uh, that's a good thing. Don't feel bad if you get stuck. That means you're about to learn something. It's a very good thing. So he's reading it over and over again. He doesn't understand. And he's got this puzzled look on his face. That's when Philip sees him. And that's when the Holy Spirit nudges Philip's heart. And says, hey, Philip, go Go over there and run alongside the chariot and speak to this guy. God bless Philip. He didn't question it. He went on over there and he was running alongside the chariot. And I mean, that's, I get, maybe that's a normal thing that happened in the first century. I don't know. Probably don't, if you see a chariot, probably don't go run alongside it. I don't know. It doesn't seem safe to me. Um, so he runs alongside this chariot and Philip sees Eugene reading the scroll, and he calls out and says, hey, you understand what you're reading? And apparently that's a normal thing to do, is run up to a chariot and say, hey, what's, what's going on? And uh, the, uh, the man from Ethiopia, whom we're calling Eugene, he says, how can I understand it unless someone explains it to me? And Philip said, well, I think I'm that guy. And Eugene has him to come up in the chariot, and I guess they're kind of going along. And they're talking about Isaiah. That's really cool. So now let's actually go to the scriptures. Let's read this directly from Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 30. And we'll, we'll read about five verses here, five, six verses. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he, Eugene, says, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. This is a quote out of Isaiah. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch, that's Eugene. You see why I called him Eugene? Side note, if you don't know what, a eunuch means, I will caution you to be prepared before you Google it, that you may learn some things that you're not ready to learn. I'll be glad to explain it later, if you would like, to not Google it, but it's free country, just fair warning. Okay, <clears throat> so Eugene, the eunuch, answered Philip and said, I ask of you, of whom does this prophet say this, of himself or some other man? Oh, I love this. This is my favorite little line here. So Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. The Holy Spirit orchestrated this whole thing. Okay, okay, okay. Riddle me this. Where had Philip been when the angel came and told him to go down to the desert? Where was he? 
Jerusalem. Where was Eugene earlier that day? Where was he coming back from? Jerusalem. They were probably in Jerusalem at the same time. They might have passed each other in the street. And yet the opportunity was not there yet. God sent Philip down to the area where he knew this man from Ethiopia would be when he was puzzling over this question. God orchestrated it so the man with the question and the man with the answer cross paths at the right moment. Please understand, God will do that sort of thing. If you're paying attention, he will do that. Sometimes you're Philip. You're the one who God is putting in a position to share some kind of truth or to give someone some kind of help or encouragement. Understand, you're going to go to work tomorrow or tonight and you might be Philip there. You might be the one who God will use to share something that's helpful. But then sometimes we're Eugene. We're the guy who needs some answers. And God will send you a Philip if you pray for it. God will send you that. So, God brings them together at the moment where Eugene had a question and Philip had the answer. Eugene's reading the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Specifically, he's reading chapter 53. If you've never read much of the Old Testament, go read Isaiah 53. It's an amazing passage of Scripture. It's one of the most famous places in the Old Testament where God prophesies about the coming Messiah. He talks about Jesus like six, seven hundred years before Jesus was even born. God gave Isaiah this prophecy of how Jesus would be betrayed and crucified. It's amazing. Predictive prophecy is something that the Bible does that no other religious book dares to do. To make a prophecy and then to fulfill it. We see that time and time again here. So Philip began at that passage of scripture and he explained the story of Jesus. How Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy about his virgin birth which is also in isaiah and his sinless life and his ministry and his miracles how he was betrayed and murdered which is in isaiah 53 which he was reading how three days later jesus rose from the dead and how most of all they recognized that his death and his resurrection was a fulfillment of the many promises of god including the most important promise of salvation so whoever trusts in jesus will be forgiven of his sins Because that death on the cross was counted to us as the payment for our sins. We ran up the bill. He paid the bill. Those who believe in Jesus can have their their bill, their record of sins, washed clean, wiped away, and join the eternal family of God and have a future with Him in heaven. And, and have a new life with him here and now. And we have a word for this. We call it the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. He shared the gospel with him. And among all the things that they talked about, one of the things that was mentioned evidently was baptism. How do we know? Because Philip is going to ask, I mean, Eugene is going to ask Philip about it shortly. So Jesus taught water baptism as an important part of following him. He, he included this in his last big command before he after the resurrection and before he left for heaven and we call it sometimes the great commission is matthew 28 if you'll pull that up please matthew 28 very famous passage love this and all authority has been given to him big and and jesus spoke to them saying all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. What's the next phrase? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And if you'll back it up and leave it on verse 19 for just a moment. See, baptism is right there between making disciples and teaching. It's like the first step in this new life lived for Jesus. It's the first step, meant to be the first step after you're saved, is, is water baptism. Um, the new life in Jesus that you have when you are saved is demonstrated in water baptism. Please understand this. Baptism is the outward symbol of inward transformation. Just being exposed to water can't save you. Salvation is something that God works in your heart. So it's, it's not, if, if, if water really washed away sins, uh, we'd kill all the fish in the creek when we baptize somebody. Because even the most saintly person you know has so many sins that they could not be dealt with in any other way but by the blood of Jesus. Understand, water baptism is not what saves you. It is a way to profess that you have been saved. Water baptism comes after saving faith. And that's what we see. Now we go to verse 36 here. Verse 36 of Acts chapter 9, or Acts chapter 8 rather. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch, that's Eugene, said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Eugene wants to be baptized. Notice Philip's question and response. Now, some Bible translations will not have this verse. That's a conversation we can have another time. Verse 37, though, is an important verse. Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Now they came up out of the water and the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. So he was baptized. But it wasn't just like, hey, that looks like a cool thing. I remember when I was first doing uh, baptisms you know in my first church and 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 my kids are real small and and uh, one of them said hey why did you put why'd you put trey's daddy under the water like are you trying to drown him why'd you put trey's daddy under the water and i had to explain no okay this is okay not just you know this here's what's going on it, it's not just a decision lots of kids will see a baptism like oh i want to do that that looks cool but really, think about what led up to this moment, okay? This man who we've been calling Eugene, God's been dealing with him for years. We don't know his name, but God knows his name. God had been calling his name for a long time and, and moving him, and he's searching the Scripture, and he's trying to understand, and now he does understand. Philip explained the Gospel to him, and he's believing the Gospel. The momentum shift is happening. He believes in Jesus and the time is right for him to be baptized. See, the pivotal question wasn't, Eugene, are you religious enough? Eugene, have you read the Scriptures enough? Eugene, have you followed a moral code enough? The question was, do you believe? If you believe, then you can. So that's the question I pose to you. Do, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Now, I'm, I'm not asking you if you intellectually agree with a set of facts. There are plenty of things that you believe on that level, on a factual level, that don't affect your life at all. 
Now, this next illustration, I used to talk about, the, about Pluto. Pluto was downgraded as a planet. I still count Pluto in my heart as a planet. Now it's like a, what do they call a dwarf planet. That don't feel right to me. Pluto's a planet. You know, what is it? Uh, my very nice mother just made nine pizzas. We leave out the pizza, okay? My very nice mother just made nine. Nine what? We don't know. I don't know. Nine attempts at arson? We don't know. We don't know what mama's doing. What's mama doing? We don't know. The pizza's been left out, so I'm keeping Pluto in. But, okay, so Pluto doesn't count. So next in line, next to Pluto, is Neptune. You ever heard of Neptune? It's like a big icy ball. Got some rings, maybe. Neptune's out there. You believe Neptune exists? Sure. Why not? Neptune's interesting to me because it was the first planet whose existence was predicted mathematically because of the gravitational pull that it, they had. They predicted it mathematically before they saw it. That's okay. That's a little science nerdery for you. Neptune's out there. Suppose everybody forgets about Neptune tomorrow. How does it affect your life? Doesn't affect your life. No more. No, you know, no more Neptune. Oh well. Okay. Don't we? We would never miss it. Okay. You believe? You believe in Neptune? But if Neptune went away, ah, eh, no big deal. Okay. Now suppose that you're on a ship in the middle of the ocean and it, it went down and you're clinging to a life preserver and the only thing keeping you from sinking in the water is a life preserver. Do you believe in the life preserver? You better because that's all you got. Now suppose that life preserver disappears. How does that affect the quality and length of your life? A lot. A whole bunch, preacher. A bunch. A lot. Because that life preserver, you recognize it as the only thing that's keeping you afloat. Now we're getting a lot closer to what it means to believe in Jesus. When you recognize that he is the life preserver that is keeping you afloat, it is not merely something philosophical or intellectual. It is a reality that without clinging to him, I don't make it. That's closer to what it means to believe. It means trusting in Him above all things for your spiritual survival. He's the one keeping us afloat. So Philip asked Eugene if he believed, and the answer was clear. He said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And, and that was a very condensed way of saying that, that he believed the gospel, that he believed this message that Jesus is the Savior sent from God and, and the fulfillment of the promises of God. He believed, and that's all Philip needed to know. So Philip and Eugene got out of the chariot, and they walked down into the water, and Philip baptized him. <coughs> Great moment. Okay, I, I got to pause here to cover something. Uh, this is important. I want to do this as respectfully as I possibly can. There are quite a few Christian traditions who practice baptism by the sprinkling or the pouring of water. And I want to be very plain that I respect anybody's um, right to practice baptism the way they want. But I, I do want to pose this. Let, let, me, let me pose this question. If, if they were going to sprinkle or pour water on this Ethiopian man to baptize him, why would they need to go out into the water? Why would they need to bother to find a bunch of water 
These are sensible people living in the Middle East. They have water on board this chariot. They could use their drinking water to do that, and they would not have had to wait for that moment. It's just something to think about. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm convicted by the idea of baptism by immersion. That's what we practice um, because I think that's what we see in the Bible. And it's important as a symbol. See, water baptism is, is not the ceremony that saves your soul. It, water can't wash it away. It's the ceremony that shows your soul has been saved. Okay. I want you to catch this. This is a little deep here. Some deep water here. Water baptism is a symbolic representation of something bigger called spirit baptism. And I know there, there are some traditions that um, speak of the baptism of the Spirit as a, as a very specific set of, of charismatic expressions. Um, but Spirit baptism, as I understand it, is an inward event. It's what's happening in your heart. Okay, when you place your faith in Jesus, you're immersed in the Holy Spirit. Not like dropping a rock in the creek. It's more like a sponge, okay? Because the sponge is in the water, and the water is in the sponge immersed that's what happens when you are saved the holy spirit you're in the spirit and the spirit is in you you're filled you're not just surrounded the holy spirit is in you please understand this when you trust in jesus and you're saved the holy spirit comes to live inside of you and that sounds a little weird and a little creepy but just understand god is literally with you always he's always there with you and also keep that in mind Wherever you go that you shouldn't be, you're taking God with you. So keep that in. That's, that's some accountability there. It's like, um, I probably should not take God here, you know, to this place. I should not include God in what I'm doing right now. That's probably a good idea. A rule, rule of thumb, if you wouldn't take Jesus where you're going, don't go there. If, if you wouldn't include Jesus with whatever you're about to do, eh, maybe don't do it. That's just a good rule of thumb. It's not 100% accurate, but... You know, just something to think about. Um, it doesn't stop there. Water baptism is, is symbolic of the cleansing of sins. It doesn't literally wash away sin because there's no magic in the water. There's no soap that is strong enough to scrub away a single sin. It doesn't work that way, but it is, it is an acknowledgement that Jesus has washed away our sins and we have been set free. But wait, there's more in this baptism infomercial. <laughs> In water baptism, we identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. There's symbolism there. As you're lowered under the water, it's a symbol of your old life being dead and gone, your old self being dead and gone. You're raised out of the water, resurrected to a new life with Jesus. You're not the same. And uh, throw another thing in there. Water baptism is an act of obedience to Jesus. When He saved your soul, when He saved your life, it, things should change. You aren't living for yourself anymore. It's a life of obedience to Him. It's a way of saying, okay, I'm, I'm different now. I'm going to follow Jesus now, and I'm going to obey him in this first thing, baptism. And as a final bonus, water baptism is the outward sign that you've joined the fellowship of believers. It's a sign that, hey, I'm, I'm part of this now. I'm part of, the, part of this crew now. Look, if you haven't gone through the waters of baptism, there's a lot of reasons you should. But you need to know that it's more than just a decision because it sounds good. When this Ethiopian man was baptized, it was more than him just saying, ah, that sounds, that sounds like a great idea. 
The Lord was working in his heart and his life, and he was ready. He had trusted in Jesus as Savior. That's really what has to happen first. He, he first, the Holy Spirit renewed him, and then he could be baptized. Water baptism is not what saves you. It, it couldn't. Only the blood of Jesus saves us, saves us. Water baptism is the outward expression of inward transformation. If you're a note taker, that's a note to write down. Water baptism is an outward expression of inward transformation. So I began this message talking about Helen Keller. And do you remember the word that Ann Sullivan spelled into her hand with sign language? You help me out again, Tara. W-A-T-E-R, water. So I have an acronym for you. I like acronyms. Sounds like fun to me. W-A-T-E-R. Wash away the past, emerge renewed. Water. That's kind of a picture of of baptism. Wash away the past, emerge renewed. Now, once again, the water itself is not what washes away your past. It's Jesus who's washed away your past, symbolized by the water. We emerge renewed not just because we got wet, because but because we got saved. Water baptism is a symbolic reminder of what Jesus has done for us. When you trust in Jesus, your past is washed away. You are renewed. It is a reality. It is a visible confirmation of an invisible truth. So I have two questions for you. It's the the questions that I always ask someone when I'm about to put them under. If you've ever watched me do a baptism and, and you see me saying something to them before they go under, this is what I say. And I've got the privilege to say it to some of you guys. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And are you ready to profess Him in baptism? And if the answer is yes to both of those things, then it's right and it's good. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do that if you need to be baptized and you can answer yes to both those questions I want to know about it and we want you to be baptized next week okay but I want to I want to talk to you about it let's go to the Lord in prayer heavenly father thank you for this reality of salvation in you and this symbolic act that you've given us of baptism and water Lord, I pray that we will be people who are always putting our faith and hope in you. That we can't wash away any of our sins, only you can. Lord, I want to pray for for anybody receiving this, either here in person or listening to it later on in a recorded form, that if it is right for them to be baptized, that you would either hook them up with us or with somebody in their area that they can be baptized in water to have this outward demonstration of this inward change. Lord, we praise you so much, and we give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, that's all I've got today, folks. If the Lord's working in your heart to be baptized, I want to know about it. I really want to help you out there. Hope you have a fantastic, wonderful week. And Lord willing, we'll see you next Sunday. Um, And you'll be having like beans in one hand and peanut butter in the other hand. Remember to go to the school in Haiti. And um, maybe put somebody under one arm and somebody other, under the other arm and bring them to church service. Baptism service next Sunday at 2 p.m. God bless you guys. Take care.